Welcome to the Life Community Church Podcast. We are so excited and thankful you've decided to join us. We have a very special message for you today that we pray blesses you. Cool. You know what they decided? They said, he's taking so long to get up there. We need, we need something to fill in the time. So I get to get a bump video. And I'm pretty excited about these walking tacos. I don't know, I don't know if you have to catch them yourself. Uh, like they're free-range taco. Have you ever had a free-range taco? So, so. so how you doing? Happy Easter. Jesus is alive. Isn't that exciting? I mean, if, if Jesus, Jesus isn't alive, then your faith is in vain. That's what Paul said. It's just a waste of time. But he is alive, and it makes all the difference in the world. So we're, uh, we're starting a new series today called Gospel Culture. Uh, the goal of this is we're gonna, we want to know how to biblically respond to what's going on in our culture right now, which is, everybody agrees, pretty crazy? Pretty crazy? Uh, we're going to talk about wokeism. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and what it means, because, you know, it's, what it really originally meant, what it means now is not the same. And so a lot of definitions have been changed. Our, the language has kind of been changed with definitions. So how do we deal with that? So how do we live in a gospel culture? How do we deal with it? So today I want to talk about kind of, I'm kind of taking the end of, we were talking about scripture and the importance of scripture and having a foundation in, in the, the word of God. So we're going to talk about the, the authority of scripture today. Uh, and, and what it means and how we, because we've talked about how we got the scriptures, what Jesus believed about the scripture. So we want to talk today about what this means. I mean, actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the things that we can look at and see that the Bible is authoritative because the Old Testament predicts Christ coming and dying on a cross for our sins. And then Jesus himself predicted his death. Now, predicting your death is not that difficult because we're all going to die, right? What's different and unique is that Jesus said, I'm going to die, but on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. And so that, it's authoritative. Whoever can predict their own death and then their own resurrection, whatever that guy says, I'm believing him. I'm following him, right? So, so Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We talk about this a lot, you know. But, and so dying on, we think about dying on the cross. And, and dying on the cross was horrible. It was horrendous. But, you know, Jesus wasn't the only one who died on the cross. A lot of people have died on the cross. But what made Jesus' death on the cross different is what he accomplished for us on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus carried my sin and your sin. He carried, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So it wasn't the nails that killed Jesus. It was mine and your sins. Can you imagine the weight, the, the, the shame, the, the agony of, of every sin that's ever been sinned? And so Jesus carried that for us. He took it for us. Not only that, Hebrews tells us that on the cross, did he not just carry our sins, but that he died our death. 
He tasted death for every man. By the, by the grace of God, Hebrews 2.9, he might taste death for every man. So he tasted our death. In other words, so, so now for the Christian, death is different. Jesus changed death from a dead end to a doorway. So that in Christ, what, when we die, we, Jesus said that, you know, when he's at the tomb of Lazarus, he says to Mary, he says, do you believe in me? She said, yeah. He said, well, you know, if you believe in me, you'll live even if, you'll die, even if you die. You'll live even if you die. You think, that doesn't make sense. But then that makes sense <laughs> because what it means is that there's life beyond this life in Christ. So he, he died our death. And then Hebrews 12, this is incredible, is that Hebrews 12 tells us that he took our shame and our separation from God. All the shame that you feel when you do something wrong, when you sin, all of that, all of the weight of punishment, we don't think about it, but when Jesus died he, and he went to hell, he took our eternal punishment on himself. So as he took everybody's sin and he took everybody's death, he also took my punishment. And then he defeated death and rose again so that he could give all of that to us. So he's the only person that's ever done that. And so he proved who he is, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's the God who came to save us. So Jesus came. We're talking about the Scriptures. Jesus came to fulfill the Scripture. And that, that he did that, we see his authority in fulfilling the Scripture. Uh, Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, to complete, to finish. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. If the Bible is the Word of God, and it's true, so if the Bible is the Word of God, and it's true, that it, then it can carries the divine authority of God. Or it's not just an opinion. And as Christians, if, if it's the Word of God, we should live our lives under the authority of the Word of God. Would you agree with that? Be careful because, you know, I'm leading you down a path here. So, see, the real issue is not if the, if the Bible is true. The real issue is the Bible true to us in such a way that we actually obey it and live it. I don't mean mental assent, because a, a lot of people will agree about the Bible, but they're not really agreeing with the Bible. <laughs> Do we see the Bible as authoritative in our lives and our thoughts and our feelings and our beliefs and our experiences? So do we then change our behavior to line up with the, the Bible, or do we ask the Bible to line up with our behavior? So if we, ask, if we live according to what the Bible says, that would be a gospel culture. And so we're, in a, we're kind of in a, a place in history, a time in history for us. There's many people, many churches in our culture today that don't view the Bible this way. Listen to what, this is what Union Seminary in New York City put on Twitter. That's, you know, that's probably three bad things, New York and Twitter. While divinely inspired, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages 
are from God. Are God's, or which messages are God's. Uh, Michael Bird, who's a theologian, translate this. He translates this in, in case you don't speak prog- progressive ease and you don't know what they're saying. The Bible has some bits that genuinely come from God and other bits that represent human prejudice and bigotry. Thanks to the invention of critical theory, a postmodern literary approach that teaches that all claims to truth are in reality claims to power, that everyone can be divided either oppressor or oppressed. We can identify the divine bits of the Bible and the oppressive bits that are products of capitalist, patriarchal, heteronormative, racist, Zionist, alt-right evil. No one else in church history was able to do this before us because the churches of previous ages were filled with, be careful what you amen, uh, were filled, (laughs) the churches of previous ages were filled with insidiously evil cisgender white males. Now you can say amen to that, I guess. So we really are the ones the church has been waiting for since only we have the privileged progressive perspective to show everyone which bits of the Bible actually come from God. So does God only speak in the parts of the scripture that agree and fit with our own particular agenda, whether left or right politically? Are we playing pick and choose with the Bible? like a buffet line, or are we living in practical submission to what the Bible teaches? So here's what I would say. We all pick and choose. We just don't realize it. Most of us would be appalled when we read the news to hear that ISIS jihadist groups capture Christian and Yazidi women, and they rape them and use them as sex slaves. It's actually part, not not of all of Islam, but of ISIS, that group of particular jihadists. They believe that this is one of their ploys for conversion. This is one of their tools to convert people to Islam. Here's what the Bible said 3,500 years ago. When you go out into battle against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers you them in your hands and take them away captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as your wife for yourself. You shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails because, you know, they could have been gnarly. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month, a whole month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. It shall be that if you're not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money for... You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. It's pretty weird, right? Right? Come on. You read that and say, oh, okay, I don't know. Can we skip over that part? Deuteronomy 22, 28. If a man finds a girl who's a virgin who's not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they're discovered... I don't know what happens if they're not caught, but they get caught. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father's girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her. Divorce? He can't divorce her all of his days. How do you like? So you have to marry your rapist. Now, this sounds horrible. There is a practical side to this because 
3,500 years ago in, in a masculine culture that existed in, not just in Israel, but in all the ancient peoples, a woman that, was, that had been raped was considered damaged goods. She had no future. There was no one going to marry her. But this practically says, okay, you've ruined this woman's life. Now you've got to marry her, and you can't divorce her the rest of your life. You better sleep with one eye open, buddy. <laughs> right? Or how about this? How about this scripture? And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. You can't eat bacon. You hear that? Or shrimp or catfish, certainly not mud bugs. They have got to be, of all things, an abomination. You know, Ricky Wright, you know, being a Cajun, said, you know, all a, all a, a Cajun needs uh, to survive is a ditch. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a ditch somewhere. So, so I went in the kitchen, and Johnny was cooking bacon in the church kitchen, defiling the whole church with the smell of freshly cooked bacon. And I said, Johnny, the Bible clearly says you can't have bacon. And he said, that's Old Testament. It doesn't apply. So is that right? Is that what Jesus said? That, that is the Old Testament, but, but does it not apply to anymore? I mean, really? I mean, what did Jesus say? Jesus said every jot and every tittle. So how, how do we do that? So we're going to, so we're going to, let's, so we're going to eat bacon. All right. You, you agree with that? We're going to eat bacon. So then Leviticus 18, just a few chapters later says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. So, so we're going to ignore that one too. Don't be in real quiet now. And even there's some New Testament stuff we ignore. 1 Corinthians eleven four. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So, you know, if you're wearing a hat, sorry. That, and that's kind of, you know, have you noticed, it used to be that a lot of people wore hats, and when they would, there'd be a prayer, they'd take their hats off. And this was just part of this, this culture. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head. So many of you have disgraceful heads. I just have to say that. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it, it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Let her cover her head. So... Everyone here who has trimmed their hair on your way out today, we're going to shave your head for you. So thanks for coming to Easter. Uh, <laughs> some of you have pre-shaved, I noticed. Uh, thank you. Uh, if the Bible is authoritative, okay, we say the Bible is authoritative. How do we deal with this? Do we just dump the Old Testament, you know, and say, you know, it's Old Testament and just get weird. That way we get most weird to get rid of most of the weird stuff. But we can't do that because that's our story. This is where we get our story. This is how we know where redemption comes from. This, this is God revealing himself to Abraham. This is, if we read the Old Testament, Jesus said, if you read the Old Testament, it's me. 
the Old Testament reveals me. So if we throw away the Old Testament, we don't have the law. We don't have the prophets. We don't have the prophecies that are showing us that Jesus is coming. So both Jesus and the apostles affirmed the Old Testament. The New Testament is filled with the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is essential for us to understand God's plan. John 5, 46, Jesus said, for if you believed Moses, which is talking about the first five books of the Bible, you would believe me for he wrote about me. Or we can divide the Old Testament. This would seem practical. We divide the Old Testament into civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral components. So we'd say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take the, you know, the stuff that's legislative. There's legislative stuff to run the government. That's, that doesn't apply necessarily personally. It's property laws and how to deal with property and all that kind of stuff. And, and then there's ceremonial stuff about how to worship and, and when, when you're going to have feasts and when you're going to do this and what you're going to offer and all of that. Uh, and then there's moral components like the Ten Commandments. So, so what if we kick out the civil laws and, uh, and the other stuff? And we, let's just keep the Ten Commandments. But that's not... That's not right because the law is not the Ten Commandments. The law is the law. The law is a unity. It's all of it. It's, we, can't just, we can't just pick and choose. It, 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 it isn't a buffet line. So what if we just interpret the disturbing parts allegorically or spiritually? In other words, we you know, say, well, you know, that's not really locust. That was, you know, helicopters or, you know, like that's what we do with the book of Revelation. So, uh, so, so, we in, in, so we interpret it in a way that makes it, you know, not as tough. It's kind of a cop-out. Basically what you're saying, yeah, we know what it looks what it means, but it doesn't mean what it means. It means something else. Uh, or do we just give up the notion of authority and just use the Bible as needed for our pet causes? You know, just because, I don't know if you'll notice this, politicians are pretty good at this. They love to take a Bible verse and then sit it, insert it into a speech, both Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't matter they love to take a Bible verse, usually out of context. They don't have any idea where it came from. Some speechwriter said this would fit good here. They read it, and he's like, okay. But what, they're just using it as a proof text, usually out of context, to support what they want. So we believe this. We believe the Scripture is authoritative, but not everything in the Bible is authoritative for us. So we've got to define this out. How do we distinguish what is authoritative for us and what's not authoritative for us? Can we eat bacon or not? Is homosexual, homosexuality wrong or not? How do we make these decisions? So the scripture is authoritative, but not everything in the Bible is authoritative for us. We have to describe, decide, distinguish between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. Or do we have to decide when it's, it's describing something or it's telling us to do something? Okay, Abraham pimps out his wife so that he, he can be safe. This is descriptive. It's not saying this is what you do with your wife. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Genesis 12, 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife, and they will kill me. But they'll let you live. This is Abraham talking to Sarah. Please say that you are my sister, 
so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. This is describing when Abraham, the father of our faith, didn't have faith. Right? He's, he's afraid. He's afraid they're going to kill him. So he says to his wife, hey, let's, would you tell him you're my sister? It's, the Bible's not encouraging us to do that. But it's describing, and it even gives detail, there was a cost for it. Not only what. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah the Gileadite, one of Israel's judges, and if you want to read a lot of crazy stuff, read the books of Judges. The book of, ju- the books of Judges? The book of Judges. Uh, it's crazy. And, I, and I, I, I did a sermon a couple weeks ago on the strangest story in the Bible. So go back and listen to that, and it will talk about that. But Jephthah the Gileadite, he's going to war against the Ammonites, longtime enemy of Israel. And so he makes this claim. He says, if we are victorious, when I return from battle, the first thing that comes out of the house, I will offer as a sacrifice to God. If we're victorious, they're victorious. And he returns home. And when he gets there, who is coming out of the house but his own daughter? And it didn't go well for her. Now, the Bible is not encouraging us to make rash promises to God because they are to God. We must fulfill them. It's showing us, look what this idiot did. Don't do it. It's descriptive. Even if we're like Jesus, Who doesn't want to be like Jesus, right? And we get to pray for a blind person to get their sight. It's probably best not to make mud and put it in their eyes. I love this verse. Just just think about this verse. You're the blind man, and Jesus, you're standing in front of Jesus in John chapter 9. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. When he had said this, he spat. You're just, you're just sitting there waiting for Jesus to heal you. You're blind. You can't see what's going on. You just hear, and in a minute you think, is that mud? Oh, gross. No, it's all, it's all fine when you can see at the end, right? All's forgiven. <laughs> You know, here's mud in your eye. Uh, You see, there's a difference between what is descriptive and, in other words, it's showing what God can do. It's not saying that that's how we necessarily do it. Many of the commands of the Bible are not directly relevant to us because they were in a cultural context. So Paul goes to Jerusalem to talk to the leaders, the apostles in Jerusalem, about his ministry, the Gentile. God called Paul to the Gentiles. All of the early church, all of the early church leaders were Jewish. Nearly all of the early church was Jewish, but God specifically sent Paul to the Gentiles, and he went all throughout the Roman Empire preaching the gospel and led thousands and thousands of people to follow Christ. And this ministry of the Gentiles was different. Now, in the Jewish world, there's two kinds of people, Jews and everybody else. And everybody else is a Gentile. 
So when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he's explaining to the apostles, Peter is with him, they're explaining to the apostles what God is doing among the Gentiles. They're excited that Gentiles, because they didn't think pagan Gentiles could even comprehend salvation, would even desire salvation, and they're seeing Gentiles are coming to follow Christ in incredible numbers, great things are happening, and when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to wreck them to observe the law of Moses. That'd be a kind of a deal killer at the end of a service, right? You want to see if Christ is your Savior? And there's a side room over here where you're going to have to be circumcised. It would have kind of put a dampener on Billy Graham crusades, I'm sure. But so they're saying, hey, this is the law. This is what the law prescribes. If they want to follow Jesus, they've got to do what we've done, and we've been circumcised, and we're keeping the law of Moses, and that's what they have to do. But James, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, James, who is a Jew, James, who is the brother of Jesus, who converts after Jesus is resurrected, says, therefore, it is my opinion that we should not put obstacles in the way of and annoy and disturb, <laughs> that's kind of annoyance, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should send word to them in writing to abstain from and avoid anything that has been polluted by being offered to idols and all sexual impurity and eating meat of animals that has been strangled and tasting of blood. So he just says, okay, let's, let's just keep them away from idolatry, keep them away from sexual immorality, and keep away from the, rich, the blood rituals that are involved in temple worship. He's not saying, now some might read that and say, well, you can't eat a rare steak because it's got blood in it. That's what it's saying. <laughs> yes, you can. The context is blood used in idolatry and meat from idol temple sacrifices. What, so what James is saying, we live in a new covenant. And the things that apply to the Jews are not applicable to these Gentiles, or really. And then Paul later says, not to us either. Number three, Bible stories and commandments deal with harsh realities, not ideal situations. The Old Testament conveys the ruthless realism of God's people trying to survive in an ancient world that has a particular view of masculinity, women are property, uh, in the, in the old world, even up to the time of Jesus, kinship, moral duties, and social order. They were honor cultures. They weren't individual. We live in an individualistic culture, and we think of everything being defined by individualism. But ancient cultures were honor cultures, and they were, they were defined by the group, by the family, by the tribe. So when we read the Old Testament, we should read like the commandments about war knowing that it was for a particular purpose, for a particular time, and in a particular place. It wasn't ideal. It was regrettable. It was ugly. But something better was coming. And Jesus, often, see, often when we look back in history, we think of ourselves, often think of ourselves as morally superior to ancient people. That if, you know, if I'd been in the garden and the snake shows up, he's trying to get me to take a bite of the fruit, the apple, whatever it is, 
I wouldn't have fallen for that. I'm not stupid. Oh, wouldn't happen to me. So we look, we look back at other people and the, you know, David, if I was David and I saw Bathsheba bathing, bathing on the roof, no temp, I'd just gone in the house. It wouldn't have bothered me. Uh, but we, we do that. We see ourselves as morally superior. But just think about this. Just look back 75 years to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where we, as, as a country, dropped two atomic bombs that killed in the immediate blast 226,000 people, mostly old people, women, and children. Now, we did that because we were trying to end a war that was horrible, that had already seen devastating loss of life. But if you just look at it from just the pure evil of it, <laughs> it's, it's a horrible thing to have to do. But in a world that is a cold, hard place filled with evil, sometimes drastic measures are required to stop evil. I th- was it eight or ten years ago that, that a man started killing Dallas policemen downtown? He killed eight and they finally had him cornered in an area, and they sent a robot in with a bomb and killed him. And some say, well, well that's, that wasn't moral. Well, I, you know, they're like, hey, we've lost eight today. We're not, we're not putting more men out there. You understand the rationale of it. It was, it was, how do you deal with evil? Sometimes dealing with the evil is very difficult. Number four, we have to interpret the Bible in light of progressive revelation. God's revelation in Christ is the climax of God's revelation to us, and it represents a definitive account of God's purpose to us. So we need to measure everything by Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago, to the, long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. See, Abraham had a revelation from God, but it was a limited revelation. And he acted in faith upon the revelation that he had, and God honored that. And God accounted it to him as righteousness. Then later, David, King David, had more revelation about who God was than Abraham did. But in Christ, you and I have way more revelation than David got. Because we have the fullness. David still was seen partially. And now we, through in Christ, we have the fullness of the revelation in Christ. It's like this. So we're going to look at everything in Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we we can read the stories and we can have descriptive stories of how the Old Testament patriarchs did marriage and Abraham is one and we can almost follow it through. They often practiced polygamy. Now we can read what God said. It's that's not what it is. It's a relationship between man and wife. Uh, And yet they practiced polygamy. If you follow those stories, it's almost universal disastrous results. 
So then Jesus in the New Testament speaks of this. So how are we going to interpret this? What's, how are we going to interpret what the Bible says? So Jesus speaks of this. So the Pharisees come to him and say, what about divorce? Because the Pharisees kind of had this willy-nilly, willy-nilly view of divorce. You could just divorce anybody, anybody that you wanted to, just if it was inconvenient to be married or they burned breakfast, you could divorce them. So in Matthew 19, Jesus said, and he answered them and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus in a couple of lines gives us a lot. First of all, he says, God created male and female. So Jesus said there's two genders. Biology and science tells us there's just two genders. Okay? So Jesus, how do we interpret that? We know what Jesus said. Jesus said marriage is between a man and a woman. Jesus said this. See, now, all of you are amen in me. Jesus also said sex is reserved for a man and a woman after marriage. Ding, 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 ding. He also said divorce is not God's plan. There are biblical exceptions. Unrepentant adultery and abandonment or the fact that you had that divorce before you got married. But even that, it's not ideal. Anybody would say that divorce is ideal. There are, there are reasons, there are biblical reasons for divorce. But even the very best of divorce, the, here's the problem with divorce. Especially if you have children. You got to deal with those yo-yos the rest of your life. Right? So, so then in the New Testament, so then we're looking at what Jesus said. Then in the New Testament, Paul reiterates it in Ephesians 5.31. Paul is saying, hey, you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul says, remember what Jesus said? We're going to look at what Jesus said. And Jesus said, look what the Old Testament said. What was God's intention plan? Then there's other Old Testament verses that expand on what Jesus said. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church has sexual immorality within the church. He's writing this to the church about how they need to live. Corinth is like Corinth in, in ancient Roman Empire. Corinth is like Vegas. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. As, as a matter of fact, virtually every Roman town was that way, but Corinth was worse. Pompeii was worse. These were, these were bad places. They were very sexualized culture. The Roman culture was a very sexualized culture. You had a wife for your children. You had a mistress for fun. You had, if you had slaves, they were also available to you. It was... It was uh, I sort of say willy-nilly, but I'm not sure that's right. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that was the Roman, that was the culture. So Paul is speaking to the church that's living in this culture. And he's saying, okay, guys, you got to come out of that culture, and now you're going to live in a gospel culture, a, a, a Christ culture. And so this is what he says to them. Listen, hey, you guys in Corinth, flee from sexual immorality. All, any other sin a person commits 
or outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He just said very clearly, all immorality is outside of God's purpose and plan. How do we deal with this? That's it. That's how we know what God's will is. See, all Scripture is authoritative, but the teaching of Jesus have supreme authority. So Jesus said in Mark 7, 15, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes in him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And I'm sure one of the disciples said, hey, go get some catfish. Go get some bacon. So Jesus said, food's not bad. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. So we should read the Old Testament the way Jesus taught us to, centered on his life, his work, and his ministry. We should always be looking for Christ in every passage. What is he telling us about himself? What is, what is being described? What is being prescribed? Matthew 7, 24. For everyone who hears these words of mine on acts and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus tells this story. He said, if you'll take these words of mine and do them, that's, that's the caveat. That's the disclaimer. Not talk about them, not a, mentally agree with them, assent to them, but if you will take what I have said, my words, and you will do them, it will be like building your house on a solid rock foundation. He said, but if you don't take these words and do them, it will be like building your house on sand with no structural integrity. And when the rains come and the storm comes, did you know that there's always a storm coming? Have you noticed that yet? There's always a storm coming. Life is a series of problems and then you die. Are you encouraged? This is the reality of life. So you've, we've got a storm coming. How do we prepare for the storm? We prepare for the storm by building our life on the rock. Building our life on the truth of Jesus Christ, the surety of his word. It's solid. It's secure. Where are you building? Of Jesus' words, we're on the shifting, changing sands of culture. We need the authority of God's word in our life. Don't we? Amen. Let's sing the song. We'll, we'll end in prayer. Stand with me. This has been the Life Community Church Podcast. Thank you for listening.